Galatians chapter 6, as we continue our study through this book together. I've been told that there's an old country saying for whenever a preacher starts talking about money. Well, now you've left off preaching and gone to meddling. Well, Paul's gone to meddling here, and he's going to talk about money to the church, their material wealth. And, of course, what we do with our money can't be divorced from our love for Christ in any other way. What you do with your money says a lot about what things you really value, right? True. About what you really care about. You look at a person's checkbook and you can tell a lot about what their priorities are. And so the Bible doesn't shy away from this topic. And of course, there have been many abuses by many preachers associated with preaching on giving and preaching on money. But I make no apologies this morning for telling you what God says. Let's take a look at this text. Uh, We'll really focus in on verses 6 to 10, but we'll read verses 1 to 10 because it's all one piece here. Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each one test his own work, and then he ha- and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This whole passage, verses 1 through 10, is centered on one command. It's This command is the hinge that ties the two parts of this passage together. The command, of course, is in verse 2. If you haven't underlined it or highlighted it or whatever, that's a good thing to do. This should stand out. This is the overriding command. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Christians are called like our Savior, to bear burdens that are not our own, right? Just like our Savior bore our burdens, we are called to bear the burdens of others, to give up our own rights, to give up our own resources, our ease and our comfort, to love and care for those whom Christ loves and cares for. 
How can we, whose burdens were so freely borne by our Savior, harden our hearts when those He loves are in need? We bear one another's burdens. And on the one hand, of course, God demands, God commands that every one of us should take personal responsibility for ourselves, for ourselves and for our families. Verse 5, you see it there. Each one, each of us will have to bear his own load. Each of us has a personal responsibility to God. We should not depend on others to do for us what we should do for ourselves in, in, in any way. But on the other hand, there are unusual, extraordinary circumstances that come sometimes upon the people of God. And in the providence of our God, they are put under a burden that is incredibly difficult, too heavy for them to bear alone. And in those cases, what should we do? Well, verse 2 says we should bear those burdens. Verse 6, the second application, says that we should share. So Christians are called to bear and to share those burdens, not simply to watch as that brother and sister struggles under that burden, to wish them well, be warmed and filled, but to get up under that burden, to put our shoulders to it and to say, here, brother, sister, let me help. Let me encourage. Let me exhort. Let me correct. Let me provide. Let me help you. This is what the Lord is commanding us to. Love one another, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, there's two major applications of that then. The first is verses 1 to 5. This is what we looked at last week. What does it mean or what does it look like to bear one another's burdens? Well, in the first case, spiritual Christians should restore struggling and fallen brothers and sisters with a spirit of gentleness and a spirit of humility, considering ourselves, lest we also be tempted. We, we, should, we should bear those burdens with them to help them through their spiritual struggles, to give of ourselves, to enter their messiness, to deliver our brothers and sisters from the burdens that they face. But the very burden of Christ is their burden being borne by us. It's one that He means for us to experience in fellowship and in communion with Him. Paul prayed, Oh, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the what? The fellowship of His sufferings. Paul said, I'm glad to go out and spend and be spent for you. Because this is what our Lord is doing through me. It's, it's, these are, I'm filling up, he says, the sufferings of Christ on your behalf. So Christians help bear one another's burdens by coming to a fallen brother or sister, one who's just caught up in the quagmire of sin, and pulling them out setting them back on the right path, encouraging, rebuking, exhorting. In the Pilgrim's Progress, and if you haven't read it, you should, 
the pilgrim's progress near the beginning, Christian begins to enter on this journey, this pilgrimage from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And one of the first places he comes across is that one that none of us know how to pronounce, the slew of despond or the slough or the slough or the slough. Or we just like, what is that? But it's a big swamp a full of misery and sin. And Christian falls into that. His guilt and his burden weighs him down. And he's threatened to be lost forever in this quagmire of sin before he even makes it very far down the pilgrim path. Until God... In his grace, the king of that country sends one of his helpers, whose name is very appropriately Help. And he reaches down his hand into that muck and mire and helps pull that pilgrim out. And that's, that's what he's saying here. This is bearing each other's burdens. Getting involved in the brokenness of each other's lives in order to help, in order to restore. This is the first application. The second one is in verses 6 to 10, which will be our focus this morning. And here in this passage, I think he he makes this application both in a very narrow way, and then he really broadens it out to a more general application. So we're going to look first of all at the specific application here in verse number 6. What does it look like? What does it mean to bear one another's burdens? It looks like this, verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So there's a relationship envisioned here between the person who is taught the word and the person who teaches. The missionary evangelist like Paul, the local elder or pastor, teacher. And there's a command with regard to that relationship. The command is to share all good things with them. Let the one who's taught share all good things with the one who teaches. And that little phrase, all good things, is used in Deuteronomy chapter 28 in the Greek version and in Luke chapter 18 to refer to material things, material support. So bearing one another's burdens means meeting the material needs of gospel ministers. Specifically, in this application, that's what Paul has in mind. Now, there's a couple of supporting texts for this that might help to sort of round out our thinking about this. The first is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And there Paul is arguing, we actually looked at this last week, I think, but Paul is arguing that he and Barnabas have a right to be financially supported as gospel ministers. They uh, should be supported by the churches to whom they minister. And he says, basically, even nature should teach you that this is a good and a right thing. Verse number seven, he says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Or who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? And then he says, it's not only nature that teaches us that if you work, you should live off that work, but the Word teaches us that. And he goes on in verse 8, and he says, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? And now he's going to quote the law to support this principle. The law says, 
the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the grain. And he asks, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. The ox eats the fruit of his own labor. He said the minister should receive from the fruit of his own labor. If, verse 11, we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And by the way, 1 Corinthians is the very passage where Paul had said that he was willing to give up that right. We looked at this last week. He was willing to bear the burdens of the weak himself, not to put any obstacles in the place of the gospel. So some places he refused to take uh, material support from those to whom he ministers. But he says that's not normal. That's not the ordinary way that God intends it to work. And this may be why he goes back almost immediately to command them to bear the burdens of gospel ministers. This is part of a church's responsibility. The other passage that uh, fills out our thinking is 1 Timothy chapter 5. This is uh, the passage that Paul read earlier. Verse 3, he says, Honor widows who are truly widows. That is, they have no family to support them financially. You remember an example of this? Back in Acts 6, the widows were in need and they set apart men to minister to the widows. They took care of their material, physical needs. So he says, honor widows who are truly widows. And then down in verse 17 of that same chapter, Paul says to Timothy, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. This is fuller financial support, even than what is given to the widows. And then he adds, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And the point is that all elders in a church are, should, should be able to teach. That's one of the requirements for elders, right? They be able to teach. But he recognizes that some elders are especially dedicated to that task. And so he says, consider them worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And then he grounds his reasoning in Scripture once again, verse 18, the same passage, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages, which is actually the the words of Christ recorded in Luke's Gospel that he's making reference to here as Scripture. He says, the Bible tells us, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, to support those who labor in the Word. So, this is his first application, the the first really specific application of bearing one another's burdens here in verses 6 to 10, is this, that the ministry of the Word Preaching and teaching is so significant for all of us that God intends that we should bear the financial burdens of our pastors and teachers that they may give themselves to the ministry of the Word and to prayer. For pastors, like all men, bear the burden of caring for their own families. They have 
house payments and car payments and food bills and electric bills, just like every one of us. But they also bear the burden of caring for the church of God. And this is a burden that a a good pastor should not take lightly. I'm sure that uh, pastors could work a 40-hour week and do their best to come up with uh, a good sermon on all day Saturday and then get up and preach it on Sunday and go back to work on Monday. Uh, Many men have done that of necessity. My own father did that for a number of years. My father-in-law did that for many years. And I think every good pastor is willing to bear that double burden. But this is not God's ordinary intent. Rather, His intent is that we should share that burden together. Pastors bear the spiritual burdens of the flock. The flock should bear the material burdens of the pastor. You know, the world all around us pays for what it values, right? And in a free market, uh, they're willing to pay more for what they really value. And a church, in the same way, shows what it really values by its commitment to pastoral financial support. Not that a pastor wants to be paid more than those in his congregation, um, or should be. In fact, most pastors would say, no, I don't want that, because I don't want there to be any mistake about what the real motivation is for this ministry. But the idea is that the church is committed we are committed to the support of the pastors because we really value the Word of God. And uh, I, I, th- this church is an example, has been an example for many years of the kind of body of believers that clearly values the Word of God and is committed to it. But I, I want to ask you personally, what about you? Are you, have you been content only to receive the good things from the Lord and not to value it with every part of your life, including your financial support for the furtherance of His Word? Brothers and sisters, love the Word. Love its ministers. Bear their burdens. Do yourself a favor, a blessing.
the early Christians were opposed, they were even persecuted, in the beginning, not so much by Rome, but by the Jews. And the epicenter of that persecution was Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, the Christians there, they, had, they were hit the hardest. They were forced out of their synagogues. They were ostracized both socially and financially. Uh, it was very, very difficult for them. Some of them were even persecuted, having their possessions confiscated or being cast into jail. Paul himself, before his conversion, was a part of that. And so, as Paul traveled around now, he encouraged all of the places where he went, these brothers and sisters in Christ, to bear the burdens of the church that was suffering in Jerusalem. And he goes to Corinth, or he writes to Corinth, this very wealthy city, and he says to them, chapter 8, verse 1, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. He's holding these other churches up as an example. He says, I want to tell you about Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, they were going through their own troubles, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then to us, and then by the will of God to us, verse 6, accordingly we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. He sent Titus ahead to Corinth to gather their collection for the needy saints. In verse 7 he says, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this grace also. And brothers and sisters, that's what the Lord would have for us, right? To excel in the grace of bearing one another's burdens and giving and meeting each other's needs. He says, I want you to excel in this grace also. Verse 8, I say this not as a command. So there wasn't an obligation upon these people to give to help the Jerusalem church. But he says, I, I say this, verse 8, to prove by, your, by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And of course, true Christians love. Jesus says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love each other. So he says, prove the genuineness of your love. And then he gives them the greatest motive, the greatest example of all, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. And then if you just flip over to chapter 9, verse 5, just down a little bit, we'll skip a little bit here and jump in. 9, 5, he says, so I thought it necessary to urge the brothers, namely Titus and the people that were with him, to go to Corinth. He says, I urge them to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an extraction. The point is this, verse 6, 
Here's the same principle that he brought up earlier. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. There's that same principle of sowing and reaping. Now, go back to Galatians chapter 5, where we were. And here Paul elaborates on this principle of sowing and reaping in verse number 8. He says, for the one who sows, what? Say it with me. To his own flesh, right? The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, first of all, don't misunderstand. This doesn't mean that charitable giving or in fact any other good work, is the basis for receiving eternal life from God. That would be contrary to everything Paul said throughout this whole letter, right? To go back to chapter 2, verse 16, just to remind you, he says, we know that a person is not justified by works, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. No one earns their place by their own works. It's not you sow so that you can get eternal life as your merit, um, as something that you deserve because you gave to God or you gave to God's people. Such a transactional mentality is foreign to the gospel, even though it is characteristic of works religions around the world, even ones that claim to be a kind of Christianity, whether it's the meritorious circumcision of the Galatian false teachers or whether it's the sacramental merit of Catholicism, or whether it's the give-to-get attitude of the prosperity gospel. He's not saying that this is what you do in order to get eternal life, that is, it's the basis for eternal life. Rather, what he's saying is that your charity, your good works, your giving to others is evidence of the reality of your faith of the reality that God is really in you, doing a good work in you, that you are united to Christ. It's not a means of salvation, it's the testimony of your salvation. And the proof of this is in the text we just read in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, chapter, um, 8, verse 8, when he says, I say this, that this admonition for you to give, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. He says, I want you to, by your giving, prove that your love is true, that your love is genuine. Real Christians love the brethren, right? And real love manifests itself in action. Not just in words, hey, be warmed and filled by action. Otherwise, this faith is dead. It's vain. It doesn't do any good. It's not true. It's not real and genuine. Paul says, this is a testimony of your faith and your um, your destiny, destiny, which is eternal life. And John says something similar in 1 John 3, 17. But if anyone has this world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 
what testimony, what evidence is there that he really has the love of God? Or 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So loving and giving is not the basis of eternal life, but rather the proof that you have it. So sowing to the flesh, most specifically here in this context then, means using our worldly wealth for our own selfish desires. That's it. Using our material goods purely for our selfish ends. Sowing to the flesh. But while I think this principle applies specifically to giving to the Lord's work and to to the good of others, um, no doubt there's a broader application of this as well. Because fleshly people, people who are still in the flesh, people who are not born again, they sow to the flesh, as in indulging in all of those things that were identified as works of the flesh back in chapter 5, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. They sow to the flesh, and they will from the flesh reap what? They will reap corruption. And spiritual people, that is people who are indwelt by the Spirit, they sow to the Spirit. They yield themselves to the Spirit to work in them, to take control of them, and they reap eternal life. Now, what he's getting at here, though, is that there's a danger, right? This is why he says, beware, look out, don't be deceived. Because there are some people who think that they're Christians just because they name the name of Christ, but in their heart, there is no love for God, no love for His people, and they habitually sow to the flesh. Someone who names the name of Christ, but habitually sows to the flesh, he says, will of the flesh reap corruption. Brothers and sisters, let none of us be deceived thinking that we are truly the Lord's, if that is in fact our life. That person who habitually sows to the flesh will reap corruption. But there's one more element of this specific application of this admonition that that is in this text, and it's in verse 9. And here he's admonishing us to persevere in these good works. He says, let us not, what? not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. You know, frankly, bearing other people's burdens can become wearisome, right? Have you ever been wearied trying to bear the burdens of others? Trying to restore a brother or sister can become wearisome. We're burdened from the Lord to begin And sometimes we begin very well, but when it gets long and when it gets hard and when there's yet another conversation we need to have, so many of us are tempted to say, you know what, I'm really tired of this. 
I'm ready to give up. When they repay us with unthankfulness or with evil. Brothers and sisters, this is why he says, don't be weary in doing good. We're tempted to give up. Tempted to give up on being selfless in our marriage. Tempted to give up on being faithful and consistent in child training and discipline and all of the good things that God has called us to to be involved in the lives of others. And we're just tempted to say, I'm tired of it. I'm tired. I'm just tired. Brothers, look to Jesus who persevered in the midst of all kinds of opposition and hostility. Don't be weary or faint-hearted. Look to Christ. We get weary of fighting our flesh, sowing to the Spirit, resisting the devil. That can become wearisome. And after many temptations and many falls, some, some person is saying to himself, you know, I'm just tempted to quit. I'm never going to change. Hear the word of God, brothers and sisters. In due season, we will reap if we what? We don't give up. And then that brings us to verses 8 and 9. I'm sorry, verse 10, which, you know, I think in, in, in 6, he makes the specific application of supporting ministers, gospel ministers. But in verses 7, 8, and 9, he's already started to kind of broaden the application out. And now in verse 10, he's going to give a more general application of what it means to bear one another's burdens financially. He says, verse 10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I think he still probably has material support, financial support, forefront in his mind, although there are many ways to share other people's burdens. And of course, on the one hand, it's true generally that a man, every man, should bear his own load, right? He said that up in verse 5. Making financial provision for his own family through his work. 1 Timothy, the one we read uh, earlier, Paul says that, verse, verse number 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has what? Denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So it is, that is normally God's means of provision. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul actually warns, that uh, we should not do anything as a church to enable someone's idleness. As men, we should work hard. We should be diligent. We should be wise with our finances. We should live within our means. We should plan ahead so that our families are cared for, that we wouldn't have to rely on others. And women in general... God has called you to care for your household, to make sure your household is clothed and fed. This is God's ordinary plan, His ordinary means of provision. But there are times that are not ordinary in people's lives. There are times of extraordinary pressures and burdens that come upon a person. A burden that is too great for them to bear alone. 
give you some illustrations. James says um, you should focus particularly in your charity on widows and orphans. That is, those people who are in extraordinary need. Paul in 1 Timothy says that regular support should be reserved for those who are truly widows, he says. That is, widows who are not only elderly, but also all alone, completely without family, who would have the primary responsibility to care for them. Those people, he says, are in extraordinary circumstances. And we as brothers and sisters ought to look to them and see those needs and be moved with compassion and bear those burdens. In those extraordinary cases, he says, as we have opportunity, let us do good. When someone's been severely sick, or when someone's experienced some catastrophe, or when someone's lost their job, as we have opportunity to do good, let us do it. To love them, to encourage them, to pray for them, to weep with them, and to give to them. And he says this applies, note, he says this applies to all men, right? To all men, regardless of their faith. So we're talking about neighbors, our neighbors, our co-workers, even strangers. Hebrews says sometimes showing hospitality to strangers is actually entertaining an angel without knowing it. And perhaps the world will see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. But in an environment where the needs are great and where the resources are limited, he says, do good to all, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. I love how he says it, right? We're the household of faith. He reminds us again that we're a household. And what does a household do but take care of its own? You realize that the people who are related to you spiritually are more of a lasting family than any earthly family you'll have. This is your family. Love one another. Bear one another's burdens. Families look out for each other. Especially, he says, those who are of the household of faith. So there's kind of a hierarchy, right, of priorities. He says, double honor support for pastors, elders, teachers. Regular help for those who are genuine and godly widows and orphans and in extraordinary need. Occasional support for believers who are going through unusual circumstances, and then finally extending that help even as far as unbelievers as we have opportunity. What does this look like? Well, a thousand things. Sometimes it's direct gifts to people in need. Maybe it's just making a meal. Maybe it's delivering a check or giving an anonymous gift. And I just rejoice hearing many stories that end up in my ears, not meant for the public to know about, where brothers and sisters were bearing each other's burdens. We have a deacon's fund that we use to help those in need within this congregation and sometimes those without as well. 
the deacons try to gain insight into what's going on into people's lives and examine those situations and use those funds to distribute to care for those who are struggling in a particular way. We give financially to support not only the Word of God here, but around the world through our missions fund. Those who labor in the Word on our behalf around the world, places where we'll never go. Or maybe it just means for you giving a word of encouragement to a brother or sister, a word of exhortation, a text, or a phone call. Writing a little note, or even just volunteering to give that poor, weary mother a babysitting night. If you're a Christian, you know the free gift of Christ to you. So, love those around you. Show grace to them in their time of need. Give as you have received. Paul says, I'm willing to spend and be spent for them. You know what it's like to have Christ bear your burdens. So now let us go and bear the burdens of one another. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would let this word have its good effect in our hearts and minds. And not only that, but in our actions. Open our eyes to bear the burdens of those around us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.